Hello, you're listening to the Science of Everything podcast, episode 69, Animal Diversity, and I'm your host, James Fodor. In this episode, I'm going to discuss the diversity and biological taxa found in the kingdom of animalia, or animals. The goal here is to give a sense of the diversity of the animal kingdom and the relationships between different types of animals. Obviously, uh, I'm not expecting people to remember even um, a small fraction of all of the different... Obviously, I'm not expecting people to remember even a small fraction of all the different uh, types of animals that I'm that I'm going to specify. But I'm just hoping that in this episode you'll get a sense of the the rich diversity of the animal kingdom, and uh, in broadly speaking, you'll you'll pick up some ideas of, of of what different types of animals there are and how they relate to each other, which is often something that uh, many people, myself included, don't necessarily know very much about. So in this episode, I'm going to talk about basically all of the types of animals that are not mammals. So this includes all of the uh, various phyla outside of, of chordates, arthropods, mollusks, um, echinoderms, etc. And also most of the different classes within the chordate order, including uh, the, the bony fish and uh, jawless fish and uh, birds and reptiles and amphibians and so on. And for the next episode, I'll save talking about the uh, mammalian class, which obviously is uh, where humans and, and most of the animals that we sort of are familiar with fit in. So I'll, I'll leave their uh, leave them to their own episode. Also, I, ne- I must apologize if you hear uh, additional extraneous background noise in this episode, because I'm actually recording this and the, these two episodes outside. Uh, I'm sort of on holiday at the moment, but dedicated as I am to you, my loyal listeners, I'm making sure to take the time to record uh, these two episodes, get them out as soon as I can. I will let it out as much of the noise as I can, but if there's a little bit of uh, wind or people talking or whatever, then, you know, just sort of go with it. There's uh, not a whole lot I can do about it. So, that said, let's jump in and get started. First of all, I'll talk a little bit about what taxonomy is. So, taxonomy is just the science of defining different groups of biological organisms on the basis of uh, some certain characteristics and shared characteristics and then giving names uh, to, to those groups. So in taxonomy, we group together organisms into basically uh, groups or collections that we call taxa. Uh, the singular is taxon. And we also give them a, a, each of those taxa a taxonomic rank. So groups of a given rank are then aggregated to form bigger groups, and therefore you form a, what's called a taxonomic hierarchy. So Swedish botanist uh, Carl Linnaeus is credited as being the father of taxonomies. He was, uh, in the 18th century, one of the uh, really the, the first to develop a, a systematic, fairly comprehensive, at least for the time, a categorization of organisms. And he also introduced the, the what's called the binomial nomenclature for naming organisms, where you give the, the genus and then the species um, in a sort of a Latinized name. So, for example, Homo sapiens, uh, human beings, that the Homo refers to the genus, Homo, and sapiens to our species. And so all organisms that are, are given a name, named according to this binomial, binomial nomenclature, which gives the, the species and, and the, the genus and then the species names. And the idea of the uh, Linnaean system is that every species gets a unique name so that it can be identified specifically and uniquely, and also that every species is given a a unique classification. So it is uh, put in the taxonomic hierarchy in a certain position uh, in accordance with its characteristics. And that name and position sort of uniquely defines that species, and that's how you you know what you're talking about. So the Linnaean system is sort of the classical system for categorizing species. As I'll explain in a moment, there are other systems as well which have to various extents revised and or replaced the Linnaean system. But the Linnaean system is really the only one that's sort of widely accepted and still sort of 
used uh, sort of generally accepted, although everyone also generally accepts that there are a lot of limitations to it. But uh, that's the one I'm going to mostly be working with here because I think it's the most suited to the type of analysis that I want to do in this episode, just to get a feel for the different diversity uh, in the animal kingdom uh, without necessarily being too worried about evolutionary relationships, uh, which many of the newer types of uh, taxonomic systems uh, pay more attention to than Linnaeus did. Obviously, Linnaeus didn't know about evolution because that wasn't developed until later on. So let's talk about the different ranks in the uh, in the system of taxonomic ranks. You may have heard of some of these before. There there are actually an indeterminate number of ranks, so biologists can just make up new ranks uh, whenever they like if they feel that the existing ones don't fit. Uh, but the main sort of traditional ones are beginning at the top is uh, kingdoms. Then below that you have phyla, and then classes, then orders, then families, and then genre, or, or genus is the singular, and then at the bottom you have species. So species is usually the sort of main unit uh, that we that we talk about. We talk about different species or discovering a new species. Uh, we, we often think of animals as sort of divided up into species as the most sort of fundamental unit, uh, kind of like individuals or maybe chemical elements, uh, the bread and butter of, of chemistry. In biology, it's sort of species, at least that's the traditional idea. And I won't talk in detail about the concept of what f- constitutes a species because it's a whole episode in and of itself, and it's actually quite a problematic, difficult concept to define. But here we'll just accept it and move on because we've got other things to look at. So there's no real definitions as to what is the difference between an order and a family or a class or whatever. They're just different levels in the system, and there's no sort of meaning to them other than the higher up you go, the more organisms fit under the umbrella. Usually also the evolutionarily uh, older it is. So phyla appeared before... Um, relatively early on and then within those uh, phyla particular classes um, that we see that we know today are evolutionarily newer basically uh, that, that's how it's tended to work because over time the evolutionary evolution over evolutionary time the richness of the animal kingdom has tended to increase through uh, diversion evolution and as a result we need sort of to develop uh, a richer and richer classification to to account for all of those and that's why sort of higher levels of higher taxa tend to be evolutionarily older but we're not too worried about that just bear in mind that those levels, the, the the way I remember it is to use a mnemonic, kings play cards over family gravestones. So that's kingdom, phyla, class, order, genus, species. Uh, helps you remember the, the order that they go in from biggest to the smallest. A few words on some of the more modern a- attempts at taxonomy or, or ways of doing that um, that have to varying degrees replaced uh, sort of classical Linnaean taxonomy, which was based mostly on shared characteristics. You look at particular morphological characteristics, so what the animals look like and how they behave and their you know, limb structure and symmetries and um, uh, development cycles and other things and other things like that, and you, you classify them on those bases. That's the sort of traditional system. That's what Linnaeus did, more or less. Uh, these days, there are other ways of doing it. Uh, in particular, one, one field of study called phylogenetics is the study of the uh, evolutionary relationships between groups of organisms, which is uh, done through molecular sequencing and looking at, basically, genetic genomic data to see how the uh, mutations developed over evolutionary time and, and using that sort of uh, data-driven, genetics-based approach to determine the relationships between animals. So it's not based on morphology, it's based on genetics, which is a, quite a different approach. You, you, you sometimes get similar answers, but often you get quite different answers because of phenomena like convergent evolution, for example, where you have different species in similar environments, which, although they are evolutionarily distinct, so they don't evolve from a common ancestor, but they develop similar characteristics because they're in the environments that they are in are similar. That's just one of many ways that you can have uh, similar morphology, even though you have different genetics. 
There's a related uh, concept or approach, which is called cladistics. And this is an approach to biological classification in which organisms are grouped together based on whether or not they have uh, a shared characteristic with a unique last common ancestor. And so basically, cladistics works in a very different way. It doesn't have ranks or taxa like you do in, in the Linnaean system. Rather, what you do is that you just keep looking for uh, last common ancestor. So you might look at, for example, uh, humans and chimpanzees, and you look for when the they branched off with the last common ancestor of those, and then you, you mark that as a breaking point. And then you look further back, okay, when did that species that diverged to become chimpanzees and humans, when did that have a last common ancestor with, say, gorillas? And then when you find that, you go back further and further and further, and you just go sort of further back in evolutionary history looking for more and more last common ancestors with, with bigger and bigger groups of animals. So the last common ancestor of reptiles and mammals, or the last common ancestor of um, you know, vertebrates and invertebrates and so on and so on. So there's no sense of a, a hierarchy or, or levels or anything like that. It's just uh, e evolutionarily, e e looking at an evolutionary tree, basically. So cladistics is um, much more sort of true to the evolutionarily, to the evolutionary history, uh, but it's also much messier because it's much harder to make comparisons. You, you can't say that there are two things in the same phyla because you, you don't have a concept of phyla, really, in cladistics. You just have what are called clades. A clade is a group of animals or a group of species uh, that includes everything that comes from every descendant of a given common ancestor and only descendants of that common ancestor. I'll talk a little bit later about uh, some of the issues with that because... So it turns out that many of the traditional taxa in the Linnaean system are not actually clades. That is, they include multiple uh, lines, evolutionary branches sort of thrown together, or they only include some things and not other things from an evolutionary branch. And a lot of biologists think that that's a bad way of doing classification, that you should have either all or none of the descendants, basically. Um, but uh, that, that's something I'll talk a little bit more about later. Just a few other concepts and ideas and words that I want to define. So uh, phylogeny is the evolutionary history of a species or a group of species. And systematics is the, st is the uh, study of biological diversity, uh, particularly over time. So phylo phylogeny and systematics are kind of quite similar. It's just phylogeny more is refers to the evolutionary history in particular. So it's the history. You talk about the phylogeny of this species. It's its evolutionary history, its development over evolutionary time. And systematics is sort of the study of the evolutionary history of particularly many species. So th they're similar but related concepts, phylogeny and, and systematics. And so th it's from those type of words that we get terms like um, phylogenetics, for example, which I mentioned earlier. It's using a genetics approach, so hence the genetics part, uh, to study phylogeny, the evolutionary history of species. So hence we have phylogenetics. At this point, I think I might just introduce the type of analysis that I'm going to be doing and also explain an important concept by mentioning one of the biggest distinctions of animals that you've probably heard of before, the difference between vertebrates and invertebrates. The basic idea here is that a vertebrate is a type of animal that has a backbone or that has vertebra. Humans are vertebrates because we have a back. All mammals and reptiles and many fish and all birds, they're all vertebrates. Now, it turns out that vertebrates form what is called a clade. So all vertebrates share a a unique single common ancestor, last common ancestor, which goes back hundreds of millions of years ago in evolutionary time. All vertebrates are in a uh, phylum called chordates or chordata, which includes all of the vertebrates uh, plus a few other things which are kind of close to vertebrates. Vertebrates are a traditional Linnaean taxa which corresponds to a clade. Obviously, Linnaeus didn't know this. He based it on the uh, morphological similarity of having vertebrae. But it turns out that that corresponds to the evolutionary similarity of being descended from a single common ancestor. So in that case, we have taxa is a clade. And so that one's all good. Uh, there's no real controversy about 
whether that's a sort of a valid classification. But if we then talk about invertebrates, that's a different matter, because invertebrates is an example of what we call a wastebasket taxon, or a dustbin taxon, or catch-all taxon, there's a few different names. Basically, it's a term used to refer to a group of organisms or or species which have just been sort of thrown together in some classification, uh, because they don't really fit anywhere else. And often these sort of wastebasket taxa, uh, for example, in the case of invertebrates, are what we call polyphilic. I think that's how you pronounce it. Maybe it's polyphilic. Um, But what it means is that it does not constitute a clade. It actually has multiple clades in it. So invertebrates do not share a common ancestor. Or actually, a more careful way of saying that, they do share a single common ancestor, but then they also share a common ancestor with uh, vertebrates. So there's no way of of getting the category of invertebrates that either without either including vertebrates or bunching together a a bunch of different clades which do not descend from a single common ancestor. As you'll see, the the classification of invertebrates, which actually isn't in the Linnaean hierarchy, I'm I'm just using it as an example, the classification invertebrates actually includes a very large number of different phyla uh, which which do not share a a unique common ancestor uh, distinct from from chordates. So there are actually many examples of these um, polyphilic or wastebasket taxa are found in in the traditional Linnaean system. Uh, Antelope is another example. It turns out that antelope actually doesn't refer to uh, any specific or uh, group or or meaningful clade. Uh, Really, it just refers to uh, any species within the family of of, um, bovidae, which is not either cattle, sheep, water buffalo, bison, or goats. So it's just anything else uh, that was left over from those. So that Again, they, they clearly don't share a common ancestor distinct from um, cattle and sheep and so on. Protists is another example of, uh, in this case, a whole kingdom, which is sort of a waste basket. A waste basket, excuse me. If you've heard of protists, then you'll know what that means. Otherwise, don't worry about it because we're not going to focus on them. We're here to talk about animals. So let's move on from talking about taxonomy to talking a little bit about the concept of of kingdoms. Linnaeus only had two kingdoms. Remember, kingdoms is sort of the highest level of of, of the taxonomic hierarchy. There's kind of another level above that called domain, but um, I don't want to get into that too much here. Um, Linnaeus proposed basically animals and plants, and that seems fairly common sense. There's obviously a big difference between those. Basically, later on, people added uh, protists, which are essentially microscopic organisms, which Linnaeus didn't really know much about. And Linnaeus, as a, uh, sorry, a protists, as I mentioned just before, are a sort of a grab bag category. It's everything that's not an animal or a plant. Later on, fungi were actually split off from, from protists and given their own group, or given their own kingdom, I should say. And we also learnt about bacteria, um, or prokaryotes, which were then split off into their own kingdom and then later on became uh, two domains, but we're not too worried about those. All of the other kingdoms that I mentioned, that is animals, plants, fungi, and protists, all of those are what we call eukaryotes, which means they have a cell nucleus and other uh, internal organelles. I think I mentioned some of these in, in previous episodes about the cell. So today, within the eukaryotes, we have four kingdoms, generally recognized, as I said, animals, plants, fungi, and protists. The distinction between those is essentially that uh, plants photosynthesize, so they make their own food. Animals eat either plants or other animals. Fungi eat dead and decaying things. And protists are small microscopic organisms that don't fit in any of the other categories. So that's one of the examples of a wastebasket taxa. I think that animals and plants and fungi are clades, but protists are definitely not a clade because they're uh, just a grab bag of different things. So what we're looking at in this episode is just the animal kingdom. So we're not looking at plants or uh, fungi or or, uh, protists. It's actually quite difficult sometimes to decide whether something should be a protist or an animal because some of them are quite similar. Many animals, as it turns out, are also uh, microscopic or near-microscopic. But anyway, 
Oh, I should also point out one thing, that if you consult different books, you will see slightly different categorization systems because there is no single universally accepted one. The one that I'm presenting is sort of a fairly classical, fairly standard one, but you will see differences. So don't worry too much about that. I'm just tr focusing on the, the broad brushstrokes of how the different things are related, how different types of animals are related to each other and the sort of diversity that exists, not all the details of exactly what fits in where. It turns out that if you dig into this, there's a lot of controversy, particularly because... Uh, the influence of genetics and, and phylogenetics and cladistics and so on. Uh, a lot of previously held views about the relationships and proper classification of different animals has been thrown into debate. So, so many different areas, you look them up, and it's like uh, th this taxonomy is subject to dispute, and uh, there's disagreement and different models that have been proposed. So, I'm giving a fairly classical view. There are certainly lots of different views. I'm not saying this is the correct categorization. I am actually dubious that there is a single correct one. It's basically just a way that we can view the world and understand it. That's all I'm trying to present here. Okay, that caveat being made, let's start talking about the animal kingdom. So, if you remember below kingdom, the next level in the Linnaean uh, hierarchy is called phyla. Well, phylum is the singular. Now, the traditional classification system for animals has 35 different phyla. If you recall, uh, chordata, or chordates, basically vertebrates, is just one of those. So, pretty much all of the animals that you find in, uh, say, zoos or in on farms, most of the things that we think of as animals... Uh, are in just one of those 35 phyla. Now, I'm only going to talk about uh, a dozen of them because most of them, about 22 of them, only have uh, a few hundred species in them. Some of them only have one or two species that have been found. Um, and most of these 22 that I'm not going to talk about are just different types of worms, so they're kind of not that interesting. Uh, so we're not going to worry about all those different types of worms, although we will talk about some types of worms. Now, I'll, I'll go through the different phyla in order of their size, size being measured by number of species. And I'll just uh, make a clarification here that when I talk about the number of species in different, uh, at different uh, taxonomical levels throughout this series of podcasts, I'm referring to the, I'm always referring to the number of described species. So not the total number of estimated species, but the total number of species that have been scientifically described. Also, I'm only talking about extant species, which means species that still uh, exist and live today, as opposed to extinct species. So I'm not talking, I don't include any extinct species, just extant ones that have been described. That being said, uh, which phyla has the most uh, different species in it? It turns out that that's the arthropods, with over 1 million, 1.15 million, according to my uh, figure, uh, different species. Arthropods includes basically uh, uh, insects and bugs and spiders, all those sorts of things. But far and away, that has uh, more species than any other of the phyla. The next one down, which is mollusks, which is like clams and things like that, only has about 80,000, 90,000 species. So you, you see the huge difference there, 1.1, 1. 1, 1. 1.2 million to 80,000. Arthropods is just far and away the mo most diverse uh, animal uh, phyla. Then are the chordates. We've heard about them. They're the vertebrates, um, lizards and mammals and all that stuff. Also many types of fish, about 60,000 species. And then the... the Sort of the next three, in terms of level of diversity, roughly, are different types of worms. So these are flatworms, nematodes, uh, which are roundworms, and uh, annelids, which are segmented worms. And they, they each have, you know, uh, 20 or 30,000 species in them. So there's quite a few different types of worms. Remember, there's also those 22 additional phyla that I'm not really going to talk about, each of which has a few hundred, maybe a thousand species in it. Most of those phyla are also different other types of worms, but sort of less common ones. The roundworms, the flatworms, and the segmented worms. Next down are the echinoderms. This is basically things like starfish. About 6,000 different species of those. I think all of those live in the ocean. And then the, the final uh, section that I have on my list of phyla are six phyla, 
all of which are different types of sea creatures, which you, many of which you probably haven't heard of before or don't know very well. And these five different phyla are, in order of the diversity, each of them has a few thousand species in it, Nadarians, Periphera, Byrosa, Rotifera, Nematea, and Tardigrada. Now, I may have mispronounced some of those. Don't worry about the names. I don't really care about the names. The point is that there are six phyla, phyla's pretty high level, of different types of creatures, which most of, I think all of these live in the ocean. And uh, many of these are actually microscopic, and they're kind of not thing animals you would have heard of much about before. I will talk a little bit more about them in due course. I'm just giving the overview of the different phyla. So the way I sort of remember this in my head is that there are the arthropods, which has, you know, almost all of almost all the species in it, over a million. Then there's mollusks, and then there's echinoderms, uh, both of which mostly live in the ocean, mollusks and echinoderms. Then there's all of the different types of worms, three phyla of worms, segmented, round, flat. Then there's those six sort of bigger phyla of ocean, small ocean-dwelling organisms, sea creatures I broadly think of them as. And then lastly, there are the chordates. And the chordates are mostly what we think of as animals. We don't tend to think of uh, starfish or things like that as being animals, nor do we think of spiders or bugs as being, insects as being animals, usually, although technically they are. And those are, of course, arthropods. So most of the things that we think of as being animals are actually only in one phyla, that is the, uh, the chordates. And there are, as I said, about 35 other phyla, maybe a dozen of which have a significant number of, of species in them. So let's look at each of those phyla, the main ones that I mentioned, uh, in a bit more detail, and I'll go through the, the main classes in, in those phyla. Remember, class is the next level down below phyla, so kingdom, phylum, class. We're going to be looking at key classes now. I'll start with the sea creatures. I won't dwell on these too much, but I'll just give you a, a, a feel. Remember those six phyla of sea creatures that I mentioned? Uh, so first of all, the patifera. There's about 9,000 species of these. These are, these are sponges. So you've probably seen ocean sponges before. You may not have realized they are animals, but they are. They eat other organisms. They don't photosynthesize, so they're not plants and they're not fungi. They are animals. They are motile, that is, they move at a certain stage in their development. I don't know the details of that. That's a, that's a point about animals, by the way. One thing that animals have in common is that all animals move, so they're motile, at some stage in their development. Uh, some later move into a sessile stage, like sponges, for example, where they don't move, they stay fixed, but at some stage in their development, all animals move. Animals are also all heterotrophs, which means they don't make their own food. They eat, consume organic molecules from other uh, sources of, uh, from existing organisms, either other animals or plants or fungi. So, periphera, the sponges, about 9,000 species of sponges. There are uh, three main classes, uh, although most of them uh, fit within one species. Uh, basically, the, the difference between these classes, and I won't bother saying their names because they're unpronounceable, just uh, d- depends on uh, the, the, the morphology of what they look like. So, one of them have sort of spinucles coming out, spicules coming out of them, which are made of calcium carbonate. Uh, so they look kind of spiky. Another ty- a type is more cup-shaped. So th- there's a few sort of main classes of periphera, the sponges, but they fit in their own phyla, and they are animals, which you may not have known. Now, next one, uh, which has 4,000 species, so a bit less than the sponges, is the bryozoa, which are moss animals. So they kind of look like moss, but they are actually animals. And again, there's three main classes of these, uh, sort of distinguished between uh, whether they're marine or freshwater, um, and some other dis- dis- distinctions uh, between them. We won't worry too much about those different classes. The nadarians, about 10,000 species of these. These are include the corals, jellyfish, and hydra. So you might not realize that coral and jellyfish are sort of closely related, or at least sort of reasonably closely related. Uh, naively, you might have also thought to put sponges and corals together because they're kind of both sort of sessile, right? They don't move. So there are four, four main classes here. 
And it's quite interesting, you might not have predicted how they do it. So one class called the Anthozoa, and I must forgive my pronunciation here because I'm going to get so many of these wrong. Uh, normally I would look up how to pronounce these words correctly, but in this episode there are just going to be so many that I, it would take way too long to do that. So there's going to be a lot of mispronunciation, so forgive me people who work in these fields and actually can pronounce these words properly. So the Anthozoa, these are the anemones. You may have um, may know about those sort of tentacle-like plant things that, that live on the ocean floor, um, featured prominently in the film uh, Finding Nemo, and also some other coral reef sort of plant-like things, about 6,000 species of those. So that's one phyla. And then there are two jellyfish phyla, the box jellyfish and then the true jellyfish. And then the last phyla, which is called the hydrozoa, these are sort of small predatory animals, which include freshwater jellies, which are kind of like jellyfish, but not exactly like jellyfish, and also things called uh, polyps and air ferns. So a key point there is that there are actually two distinct phyla of jellyfish, the box and the true, and then there's some other things that are kind of like jellyfish, but not exactly jellyfish, which go in the hydrozoa. And then the sea anemones and other coral, life, coral reef sort of stuff, which fits in the fourth phyla. Uh, sorry, the fourth class, excuse me, uh, all within the Nadarian phylum. Moving on from them to, to the rotifers, um, rotifera, about 2,000 species in this phyla. The, the name literally means wheeled animals because they kind of look like that they have, they kind of look like they have wheels. They're very small water dwelling creatures. There's three main classes of these. Um, most of, most of the 2,000 species though are f- fit into one class called the monogonum, monogonoto, I don't know how to pronounce that. They're quite interesting. I've, I've heard of them a few times, but I don't know very much about them. They're just small water dwelling creatures. Look them up. They look kind of cool. Uh, next phyla, Nematia, Nematia, about a thousand species. Uh, th- this means ribbon worms. So these are, th- these are another type of worms. Uh, about half of them, there are, there are two main classes. Half of them basically divide up in, according to whether they have sort of spines running along them. I was going to say they're backs, but they don't really have backs, but anyway. So that's an example of a, a clear morphological difference that was uh, employed to make the distinction uh, here between whether it fits into uh, one class or the other. Does it have spines? Does it not have spines? Um, that's a good example of, of how these sorts of determinations are made. Final one of these uh, sea creature phyla, Tardigrada, Tardigrada, about a thousand species in this. Uh, these are, again, microscopic water-dwelling uh, animals, which, which kind of look a little bit like like spiders, because they have eight legs, um, but but they're not. They're not arthropods. They're actually in a completely different phyla, and there's two main classes of these. So uh, just just some highlights of the sea creatures, because I won't really mention these again, because uh, again, not many of these things people would think of as animals, but in fact they all are animals. We had we had the sponges in their own phyla. We had uh, moss animals, which kind of look like moss but are not, uh, in another phyla. Then we had the uh, the nadarians, which includes coral and jellyfish and hydra. And then we also had the, the rotifers, the, the wheel animals, and uh, ribbon worms, and then the, the last one, the tardigrada, which was a small microscopic uh, water-dwelling animals that look kind of like spiders, but aren't spiders. All of these things are animals. Let's now move on to talking about the three different types of worms that I mentioned before, the, uh, the three different phyla, the, the flatworms, the nematodes, which are round worms, and then the annelids, which are segmented worms so-called because they have different segments in their bodies. So if you dig up worms in the garden, I think many of those you find will be segmented worms because you'll see the body segments that they have. Flatworms are evolutionarily older. There's about 30,000 different species of flatworms, so-called because their bodies are flat. There are four main classes in that phyla. Uh, many of them fit into, into, one phyla, uh, sorry, into one class, Trematoda, which has about 20,000 species. Uh, these include flukeworms, which are parasites of mollusks and vertebrates. So you might, might have heard of those uh, people 
people and animals can be can be infected with with fluke worms. In fact, two of the other classes within within their flatworms phyla are also parasitic flatworms, which uh, some of them live in fish and some of them in the digestive tracts of, of vertebrates. So nasty things. Uh, there's there's one phyla, excuse me, one class within this phyla which is just comprised of all the non-parasitic flatworms. So there's sort of three classes of parasitic ones and one class that has all the non-parasitic ones in it. I uh, won't bore you with the names, but there's sort of a, a thousand or a few thousand species in each of those classes. Okay, those are the flatworms, many of them parasites, not not too nice. Let's talk about the nematodes, the roundworms. Well, there's not much to say about them. There's about 25 different thousand different species, so similar in diversity to the to the flatworms. Uh, they have tubular digestive systems. They're evolutionarily a bit more recent than than the flatworms. You also notice that there's quite a bit more diversity here uh, than was the case in the different sea creatures that I mentioned before, most of which only had a few thousand different species. These each have a few tens of thousands. Uh, last phyla, the annelids, the segmented worms that I mentioned. Mostly these fall into two classes. The two main classes in this uh, phylum are, are called oligochete and uh, polychete, or keta, each of which have a few thousand species in them. And basically this just depends on whether they have uh, keta or keats, or I'm not quite sure how one pronounces this, which is basically sort of like uh, bristles or spines that, that are found on the different segments. Again, a morphological distinction that was the basis of this uh, this classification here. So annelids are many of the... Many, many garden worms uh, fit into, into this phyla here. So that's our three phyla of worms. Now let's look at echinoderms, 6,000 species. Now I think most, if not all, echinoderms live in the ocean. Uh, these include starfish and sea urchins, are the main types of animals here that you probably would have heard of before. There are uh, six main classes of echinoderms. One of the classes are the sea cucumbers, about a thousand different species here. You might have heard of these before. They're basically marine animals that have leathery skin and an elongated body. I think they're mostly sessile. Uh, they look basically like cucumbers, hence hence their name. So they form a class, about a thousand different species of those. Another class, uh, about 700 species, are the sea urchins, which you've probably heard of before. They're small, spiny, globular animals. Uh, so they're also echinoderms. Uh, there's also a class called the sea daisies, which kind of look like starfish, but they're sort of circular. There's only three species of those, and this illustrates a point that uh, that I should mention. The name classification is often very tricky because it's hard to decide what level you should put things at. So clearly, uh, sea daisies are not nearly as diverse as, say, sea cucumbers, three versus over a thousand different types of species, and yet they're both given the same tax level uh, in the taxonomic hierarchy of class. Should sea daisies fit underneath some other class, or should they be their own phyla? It's often very difficult to make that determination, which is sort of why the Linnaean system is kind of arbitrary and a bit subjective about how you decide where to cut off. And th- there's often disputes about whether something should be... I mean, I've heard of cases where some things have been... Some class... Uh, I shouldn't say classes. Some groups of species have been... Some people have put them as high up as a separate phyla, which you remember is the second highest... Some people have put them all the way down as, I think, a family, which is one of the lowest. So it's quite difficult to, to decide this. Also, another point that often the sort of naive way that we would classify things based on uh, just a layman's looking at something without even looking at... Never mind evolutionary relationships, I just mean uh, comparing a layman's uh, looking at uh, an animal versus uh, a, a, a taxonomist or a biologist uh, looking in detail at its development and its uh, morphology and other characteristics that it has, uh, how you might come to quite different ca- classifications. So, for example, if I just looked at a uh, 
a sea cucumber, I might think, well, that looks quite a bit like a, uh, maybe an anemone, or maybe it goes with the sponges, or the moss animals, or, or the uh, or something like that. But in fact, you, you recall those are completely different phyla. They're, they're not grouped with that at all. They're actually a, uh, those are actually their own phyla. These are, these uh, sea cucumbers come under echinoderms. So that's what I think can be quite uh, useful at, at understanding, having some understanding of the the taxonomical uh, hierarchy is, is sort of having a sense of where these different types of animals fit together and what's cl- more closely related to what and more similar to what in terms of their morphology and to an extent their evolution. So, that finish that aside. So I've discussed the sea urchins and the sea cucumbers, two classes of their own, and also the sea daisies, their own small class. Uh, there are also starfish, which of course everyone knows, about 2,000 different species of starfish. Also, 2,000 species of starfish, that's so many. Who would have thought that there were that many different types of starfish? Uh, there are also a, a different class called brittle stars. Now, these look like starfish, but they're found in deep, deeper waters, and they're sort of long and slender. They have sort of whip-like arms, which they use for locomotion. They look kind of scary. They look like sort of like a cross between a spider and a starfish. It's kind of weird. You might want to look them up. I don't know why they're so much less well-known than, than starfish, because there are, there are almost the same number of species of them, 2,000 starfish and 1,500 brittle stars. Anyway, uh, last one is a class of marine animals uh, called Crinodia, Crinodea, I'm not quite sure how to pronounce that, about 500 species. These, these are also marine animals that look kind of like plants, but they have a, a mouth and feeding arms, and so they, they can live on the ocean floor or as fl- f- uh, free swimmers. I think that's, the idea is they sort of brush food into their mouths, so they're, they're kind of like plants that can move around in a sense. Of course, they don't photosynthesize, but they look a bit like plants that can move around. So, interesting... Uh, some interesting different types of animals uh, in the echinoderms. So echinoderms are types of animals that people don't think about a lot. Probably the only one people have heard of are, are, the, are the starfish. Oh, and the sea urchins, uh, the two main ones. People might naively describe those as fish. They're, they're not... Well, fish isn't really a well-defined uh, taxa, but they're certainly not very closely related at all to most of the things like salmon or tuna or whatever that we would ordinarily call fish, because those are vertebrates, whereas these are echinoderms. So completely different phyla. Or to put it differently, a sea urchin is more different from a fish than you are uh, different to a lizard. Anyway, let's move on from echinoderms and talk a bit about mollusks, which is the next phylum, which has about 85,000 different species. And they're actually the, the second biggest phyla uh, below, of course, uh, arthropods, which, which I'm coming to. Mollusks, mollusks also, I th- like echinoderms, I think mostly or exclusively live, live in the ocean. Life, of course, uh, first developed in, in the oceans, and so that's why m- uh, most phyla are found in the oceans. So mollusks, mollusks include uh, things like snails, oysters, cephalopods, and some worms. So there's, I think, about, what, eight classes of, of main classes of mollusks, mollusks that I have uh, listed here. So a couple of them are just sort of worm-like organisms with a few hundred species in them. I'm not going to worry about those, those too much. Again, uh, to illustrate another point that I've mentioned th- uh, worm-like organisms a number of times, uh, some of them have their own phyla, others fit into under mollusks, or um, or there are also some arthropods that look a little bit like worms. So, again, things that we might naively classify as being, oh, well, they, they just look like worms, can actually be sort of quite, quite distinct from each other uh, biologically. Anyway, so there are some mollusks that are basically look just like worms. Uh, I'm not terribly interested in those. Most, most, the, the single largest class of mollusks, remember, of 85,000 species, 70,000 of those, roughly, are uh, gastropods. And you may have heard of that. Uh, these are all of the snails and slugs that live uh, on ocean, uh, in the ocean, freshwater, and on land. So snails and slugs are types of mollusks, and they they have their own class, the, the gastropods. The, the second biggest class within mollusks are uh, the bivalvia, which, uh, and there's about 20,000 different species of those. 
Uh, these are clams, oysters, scallops, um, and mussels. They live in, in the ocean and freshwater, and so you've probably heard of those, bivalvia, because essentially they, they have their they have two halves to them. Then there are two other main classes of mollusks. There's one called Polyplacopora, Fora. Not quite sure how to pronounce that. Uh, they, these are chitons. That they live in rocky sort of tidal areas and on the seabed. That they kind of look like a plant or a fungus, really. Uh, but they're actually an animal. They're actually a mollusk. Um, quite old evolutionarily, I believe. Oh, sorry. Th- there's an extra one. Um, tusk shells, which which live in the ocean, they would kind of look like clams, but they're actually the, their own their own class. Uh, the, the final one, though, about a thousand different species, are the cephalopods. Now, the cephalopods include squid, octopus, cuttlefish, and nautilus. They all live in the ocean, so those are animals you've probably heard of. You might not have realized that they were actually closely related to, or sort of closely related, at least they're in the same phyla, to clams, oysters, and snails and slugs but not so closely related to, say, sea urchins or starfish, which are in, the different, which are in a different phyla. Those are, uh, those are echinoderm. Interesting fact, cephalopods probably are my favourite class of animals because um, octopuses are actually my favourite type of animal. I might do a whole episode on octopuses at some point in the future, which I don't know if other people find interesting, but I think they're very cool animals, very clever. Probably the cleverest of all the invertebrates, although it's hard to measure. Okay, so we've finished, we've finished mollusks, and with that, we've actually done almost all of the animal phyla. You, call, you recall that there are 30, roughly 35 different animal phyla, about a dozen of them we're talking about in some detail, about six of them are different types of sea creatures, uh, three of them are different types of worms, and then we looked at the mollusks and the echinoderms. Echinoderms have sea urchins, starfish, sea cucumbers, and mollusks have uh, your, uh, well, a few worms, but also clams, oysters, uh, octopus, squid, and all snails and slugs. So there are only two different phyla left, and these two phyla have basically all of the animals you've ever heard of. Because of all of those phyla before, probably only, you know, starfish and uh, snails and slugs and octopus and a few other that you've ever heard of before. All the rest fit into just two phyla, and in fact, almost all of the species also fit into these two phyla, um, because arthropods just have so many different species. Also, chordates have quite a few as well. So, th- so those are the two that are left, arthropods and chordates. I'll talk about arthropods first, because I'm going to go into more detail in chordates than I did in the others, uh, because so many of the animals that we know of uh, are actually chordates. So first of all, though, let's talk about arthropods. Over one million different species of arthropods that have been described, many that haven't been described, a couple of, I think, four main subphyla. So subphyla is a taxa that we haven't talked about before, that uh, a level of classification that we haven't talked about before. It fits in between phylum and class, as you might have imagined. Uh, so the four main different types of subphyla, basically they divide up into insects, which is the, the main one. There are over a million different types of insects, so most arthropods are insects, uh, but they are, they are one subphyla. Then there are the centipedes and the millipedes, which have their own subphylum, and then there are crabs, shrimp, shrimps, uh, lobsters, and plankton, which have uh, their own subphyla. And the last one, the last subphyla, has spiders and scorpions. Scorpions. So when you, we hear um, arthropods, I'm not sure what you think about. I tend to think of uh, spiders, but actually that's only one subphyla uh, within within arthropods. So I'll talk about that that one first. There are about 77,000 different species in this subphyla, and I won't even try to pronounce the name. One of the classes in in the subphyla, which has almost all the species, about 75,000 species, are the arachnids. So arachnids is a class inside uh, inside the phyla of arthropods. And this includes spiders, scorpions, uh, ticks, mites, and all of those uh, sort of nasty things. The other the other class uh, are sea spiders. So it's, I mean, basically spiders that live in the sea. There's about a 1,000 species of those. They have their own class. 
Some people might be interested in uh, arachnids a bit more, but I kind of don't like spiders, so I didn't go into too much detail about those. Uh, but they are a type of uh, arthropod. Next one, uh, the crustaceans. These are these are another subphylum within within the phylum of arthropods. These are shrimp, crabs, lobsters, and plankton. So most of these fit into the class of uh, maxillopods, which are barnacles, basically. Those are the things that uh, sort of live on ships. I was going to say grow on ships. I guess they do grow, but they're not plants. 15,000 of those. Also, 40,000 species, crabs, lobsters, shrimp, and krill. Those are all in a class called Malacostraca, or Straca, which has about 40,000 species, uh, crabs, lobsters, uh, shrimp, and krill. And then there are two other classes, which are mostly shrimp and other sort of marine plankton. So those are the tiny ocean-dwelling uh, creatures that uh, whales eat. So those are those are actually crustaceans. Moving on, the third of the subphyla, this one has about 13,000 species, uh, centipedes and millipedes. So essentially within those you have a class of centipedes, a class of millipedes, and two classes of things that are kind of halfway in between centipedes and millipedes. Those are also uh, arthropods. Arthropods, by the way, I should have mentioned this before, tend to have sort of hard exoskeletons, or hard, not exactly shells, but hard external skeletons. So um, spiders have those, scorpions have those, crabs have those, and uh, millipedes and centipedes have those. So that's one thing that they sort of have in common. So we've accounted for maybe 150, 200,000 species of of arthropods, but there's still about a million of them left. And all of these are uh, grouped into the subphyla called hexapods, and these are the insects. The insects are the single... Uh, or in, insecta is actually the, the class. There's another very small class w- which has a few wingless insects, uh, but we don't care about those. So basically we're looking at a class called insecta, so the insects. There are a million species of insects, the single largest class in the animal kingdom. Indeed, there are more insects than all other types of animals put together. And there are many, many different types of insects. There are, I don't even know how many orders I've got listed here, about 20 different orders of insects. I'll just mention a, a few of them. So one of the largest orders has a, about 120,000 species. These are the flies, the mosquitoes, midges, gnats, and the fruit fly. Flies are actually quite interesting because there there are sort of there are things called the true flies, and these are things that are properly called flies, and they're usually referenced by some sort of adjective and then a space, so a, a separate word, and then the word fly. So one example is fruit fly, that they're a type of true flies. Then there are these other things that have that are sort of called flies but are not proper flies. An example is a mayfly or a dragonfly, and those are written as a single word. So that can be an interesting uh, way of distinguishing between a, a true fly and a sort of a quasi-fly, whether it's written as one word or two words. If it's two words, it's a proper type of fly, uh, and you're just telling what type of fly it is. If it's a single word with fly on the end, then it's not a real fly, it's something that's kind of like a fly in some way. So, about 120,000 of fl- uh, types of flies, and who knew, I certainly didn't know this, that mosquitoes were actually technically a type of fly. They're in the same order as, as the, the, the other true flies. And order is pretty low down on the, the taxonomic hierarchy. So, mammals are, are an order. So uh, mosquitoes are in the same order as, as fruit flies, kind of closely related, which I wouldn't have expected. Another order that has a lot of species in it, about 150,000, are the Hymenoptera, and these are ants, wasps, bees, and sawflies. So these are most of the uh, what are called the eusocial insects, so the insects that have uh, big colonies and, and work in large groups, uh, in particular Ants and bees are ones that people are quite, probably quite familiar with. Those are a, a type of insect. 150,000 different species of ants, wasps, and bees. Incredible, the, the diversity there. That's, that's more than all of the different types, uh, all of the different species of uh, vertebrates put together. Just in, just in ants, ants and bees and wasps alone. There is an order called 
uh, Hemiptera, or Hemiptera, again, I'm, I'm sorry, I don't know how to pronounce this, about 80,000 species in this one. These are bugs. Now, colloquially, we often use bugs to refer to, well, any small crawly thing, pretty much any type of insect, or even perhaps some, some uh, anything in the whole phyla of arthropods, phylum of arthropods. But actually, there is a specific order of, of animals, uh, which are the true bugs. And that, that's this order here, the hemiptera or something, uh, which, which includes cicadas and aphids and leafhoppers. So these are actually, correctly speaking, bugs. There's uh, an order which has about 20,000 species in it. Uh, the grasshoppers, crickets, and the locusts, all, uh, as you might expect, are fairly closely related to each other. Another one that has the, the dragonflies, and there's a such thing called a damselfly, which I never knew about before. Dragonflies and damselflies, about 6,000 different species of those. Just amazing, the, the diversity. But I'm leaving the... Uh, there is another order called Lepidoptera, Lepidoptera, which has about 175,000 different species of, bu- of butterflies and moths. Just butterflies and moths. 175 different thousand, thousand different species. And those are just the ones that have been described. There are many more that ha- w- would not have been described. So just, just insane, the diversity within the, the class of insects. But by far, far and away, the, the most populous one is uh, a cl- an order called, an order called uh, Coleoptera, which, has f- which uh, is the beetles. Not not the band. I mean beetles, the the bug, the the type of bug. Although of course we know they're not true bugs because that's that's a different order. But anyway, the the type of insect, beetles. There are four hundred thousand known different types of beetles, and there are of course thought to be many more that have not been described in in the literature. So again, this is by far the the largest order of uh, animals that exists. There, there's a joke. I can't remember who said this. Uh, so, someone asked him some, uh, a question, something like, what can we tell about God based on the different types of animals that exist or based on evolution or, or something like that? I don't know exactly what it was. But anyway, the answer was that we know that God must have an inordinate fondness for beetles because he just made so many different types of them, 400,000 uh, different species of beetles. There are about as many different species of beetles as there are all other different spe- types of non-insect species. So if you add up all the number of species in echinoderms and uh, the sea creatures that I mentioned and mollusks and chordates, put all those together, you-, you still don't have as many different species as you have just beetles. It's crazy how many different types of beetles there are. And they fit all in one order within the class of insects. So there are many other orders in insects as well, a very, very diverse uh, class. Uh, I'll, I'll just mention, many of them are actually different types of lice, which is actually kind of gross. So I'll, I'll just mention a few of them. Uh, there are biting lice and sucking lice, some of the other uh, different orders. Uh, silverfish have their own order. You've probably seen those crawling around the house. Uh, mayflies, stoneflies, ice bugs. Stick insects, uh, there are about 3,000 different species of stick insects. They have their own order. Uh, web spinners, their own order. Man- mantises, so the praying mantis, uh, they have their own order. Cockroaches, which I think I mentioned it before, they have their own orders, about 3,400 different species of cockroaches. Termites, about 3,000 different species of termites. And then there's a, another one that sort of look like termites. Bark lice and book lice, about four, um, over 5,000 different species of those. Something called coneheads, caddisflies, and a bunch of others that I haven't even mentioned. So lots and lots of different types of insects. Um, just crazy how the, the diversity of the, uh, the insect order. So I, I'm sort of emphasizing that because, th- I mean, that's all we really have to say about, uh, about well, arthropods, actually. We're, we're done with arthropods. Um, obviously, one could do a whole series of podcasts just on the different types of, of insects and, um, and so on. But that's not what we're doing here. Our focus is on animals generally, and more specifically, we're, we're going to dive into chordates and even more particularly mammals, uh, for fairly obvious reasons, I hope. So it's time now to move to the last of our animal phyla, and that is the chordates, or basically vertebrates. 
Uh, there are about 60,000 different species of, of, of uh, vertebrates, sorry, of, of chordates. Pretty much everything that we usually think of as animals, as opposed to like worms or insects, uh, fits into this phylum. So this is fish, mammals, birds, reptiles. The, the classification of chordates is kind of complicated because of the different superclasses and subphylums and, and whatever else. Um, there's just a few that I sort of want to want to mention before we we dig into the main superclass that I'm interested in, which is tetrapods. You've probably heard of tetrapods before. It means four limbed all four limbed animals are in the same superclass. There are about thirty thousand different species of tetrapods, and the um, the four classes there that you will almost certainly almost certainly have heard of before: uh, amphibians, reptiles, birds, and mammals. But that's to come because there are actually uh, some other different types of chordates as well. So there, there's one subphylum called, called tunicates, and there's about 3,000 different species of those. These are underwater filter feeders, so, so they look a bit like some of the uh, sea creature phyla, like the rotifers, for example, and some of those other things that we discussed earlier. But, but they're actually chordates because they have... Uh, the, these ones don't actually have vertebrates, but they have a, a notochord, which is sort of, which is a, a developmental feature, which is which in vertebrates forms into the spinal column. Or, although in in, in the in these things, uh, tunicates and others, it, it, they don't actually have vertebrates. Uh, they don't have vertebrae, uh, but they have uh, a um, a notochord, which is kind of like the stepping stone to getting a, a backbone. I guess you could say, put it putting it putting it loosely. So mainly in this subphylum of tunicates, there are a few classes of. Uh, of things, uh, as I said, 3,000 species. Basically, these are animals that we would describe as sea squirts or filter feeders. And they're, they're kind of a bit like sponges in the way that they just sort of, or, or some of the other creatures, and they just sort of eat what comes to them. Uh, but but they are chordates because they do have they do have notochords, so that they are much more closely related to, to humans than than some of these other these other sea creatures that they mentioned earlier. Even if they look kind of like them, at least it's superficially. But I'm not ter- too interested in those underwater filter feeders. There's another subphylum. Uh, uh, which are the lancelets. There's only 30 species of these, not very many of them left. They're, they're basically flat fish. Uh, they kind of look like eels, but sort of flattened out, and they uh, they live in the ocean. Uh, they, they also have notochords, but they don't have a proper backbone. So they're sort of like a, a step on the way towards uh, fully formed vertebrates, if you want to think of it like that. It, so important to understand evolutionarily, but not, not very important because there's not very many species of them left. Uh, then there's uh, the agnather, about 100 species of jawless fish. This is sort of the most evolutionarily primitive type of fish. It's it's not really correct to think of evolution as a sort of a stepping stone upwards in this way, but it can be helpful to think of an evolu- think of sort of evolutionary stages of moving from one thing to another. So, if you imagine the sort of canonical story of fishing of fishes fish coming out of the ocean and you know forming legs and then walking on land and then turning into reptiles and then eventually mammals and humans, the, the stages that they went through, uh, beginning with invertebrates, so things that did not have a backbone. First of all, you had something like the uh, lancelets which just started to develop a notochord, so like on the way to a backbone. And then you had jawless fish, which is sort of like a little bit closer to monfish. And then um, you had cartilaginous fishes. That's another uh, sort of a, a subclass or, sorry, a subphylum or superclass in, in chordates. Uh, there's about 900 uh, species of, of cartilaginous fishes. Uh, sharks are the most uh, well-known type of cartilaginous fishes. That's a sort of a step up above the jawless fish because cartilaginous fishes do have jaws. They have notochords, but still they don't have a proper internal skeleton yet because they haven't quite got there in terms of the, the proper vertebrae yet. And then finally, uh, we get to a bony fish, about 30,000 different species of bony fish. These are uh, the, most of the fish that you sort of think of as like proper fish. These are the fish that have, you know, fins and gills and, and that sort of trout and salmon and all of that sort of stuff. Th- those are the bony fish. So evolutionarily, they're sort of like the, the most closely related to the land vertebrates, up from, as I said, the cartilaginous, which in turn is a sort of a step up from the jawless, which in turn is a sort of a step up from the lancelets. Quite a lot of species of fish, about half of all uh, chordates are 
bony fish. Um, there, there are two types of, two classes within the, the superclass of bony fish. One of them has essentially all of the species. These are so-called ray-finned fishes. Pretty much all the fish you know about fit into that class. And then there are the lobed fin fishes. These were, I think, thought to be extinct, but there are now known to be eight extant species. Uh, in this is the... Uh, actually, there are two species of coelacanth. These are very, very evolutionarily old fish, which uh, still have lobes rather than rays. And then there is, as I mentioned before, about 30,000 or maybe 28,000 uh, different species of tetrapods, four-limbed animals, including 6,000 species of amphibians, 8,000 species of reptiles, 10,000 species of birds, and uh, a mere 5,500 species of mammals. Uh, hopefully you know what mammals are. They're basically animals that have fur and that uh, suckle their young, as opposed to reptiles, which are sort of scaly and lay eggs, and amphibians, which are also... Um, which also lay eggs and kind of live half in and half out of the water. Of course, you know what birds are. Let me compare, just to give some perspective, let me compare mammals to some other classes, so same level on the hierarchy, in terms of number of species. So, for example, there are about the same number of species of mammals as there are monogonea, or monogonea which are a type of small parasitic flatworm that, that are found in the gills of, or skin of fish and almost certainly you've never heard of before. About the same number of species of those as there are of uh, mammals. There are about 70,000 species of gastropods, as I mentioned before, so many, many times the number of species of mammals. And those are snails and slugs. Many, many times the number of species of snails and slugs as there are a uh, number of species of mammals. Of course, we could look at the insects. Grasshoppers, 80,000 species. Cockroaches, uh, 3,400 types of species. Remember, 5,500 different types of mammals. 3,000 species of termites. Of course, we remember the 400,000 species of beetles. So j just to illustrate the point that uh, the, the diversity of the animal kingdom is, is far and away greater and goes far beyond and outside of what we ordinarily think of as animals and all the type of animals that, that we are. But anyway, we still are mammals and we still are interested in animals that are kind of like us, so we're going to spend more time on, on chordates and, and we'll get to mammals. Before we get there, though, there's a bit more to say about the, the bony fish. So I, I mentioned the two different main classes of bony fish, the ray-finned and the, uh, the lobe-finned. I'm going to talk about uh, briefly about the, some of the different orders uh, within um, the ray-finned fishes. Remember that order is the next level down below class. So class is uh, sort of where ma mammal, mammalia is a class, so mammals are a class. I'm now going to just briefly go, go through some of the ray-finned fish orders. There are dozens of them. About 30,000 species in total. What I'm going to do is I'm just going to mention the name of a fish that you've probably heard of before, or type of fish, actually. Each one of these is a different order of fish. So each of these has about as much diversity as, as sort of primates, you know, very loosely speaking. So, reedfishes, sturgeons, gars, bowfins, moon eyes, ladyfishes, bonefishes, true eels, gulper eels, herrings, milkfishes, carp, electric eel, catfish, barrel eyes, Salmon and trout, that's one. Pike, jelly nose fish, bristlemouth, Bombay duck, latinfish, ribbonfish, beardfish, cavefish, toadfish, anglerfish, cod, pearlfish, mullet, silver sides, flyingfish, whalefish, live bearers, ridge heads, fangtooth, dories, clingfish, stickleback, seahorse, swamp eel, flatfish, scorpionfish. All of those, each of those was a different order of fish, and that, of course, wasn't its proper name. That's its common name. Uh, you can hopefully get a sense there of the, the huge diversity of fish. But actually, um, those, all of those orders only account for about 60% of the th roughly 30,000, uh, so m maybe something like 20,000 uh, different species of fish. There's about 10,000 species in the order called Persiforms, which is about 40% of all fish, or all um, ray-finned uh, bony fish, 
And these are this includes many of the fish that you would have heard of before. So things like um, mackerel and tuna and, and uh, whiting and things like that. Th- those are all actually fit in the same order. I'm not quite sure why that one's so much bigger than all the others. But that's another thing that can be useful when studying taxonomy is to get a sense of uh, sometimes there may be lots of different orders or classes or something like that, but one of them is far and away bigger than all the others, and so sort of you, you may want to focus on that. Like, for example, insects is far and away bigger than, than many of the other different uh, classes. Okay, so uh, that's just a sense of the diversity of, of fish. We're not, we're not going to go into the details of, of any of those. Uh, it was just to give you a sense, but those are all bony type of fish that have, you know, internal skeleton, backbone, and so on. There's also, as I mentioned before, lobed fin fish, which which are their own separate class. There are only eight different species of these. There there is a two species of coelacanth, which are their own order, and uh, then six different species of lungfish. So very evolutionarily ancient type type of fish there, but not very many around. So compared to fish, bony fish, amphibians and reptiles actually have much, much less diversity. There are about 6,000 species of amphibians and 8,000 species of reptiles, so that's um, several times less than, than the bony fish. But also the number of orders is much lower. There are only three different orders of amphibia and, and four of reptiles. Amphibia, most amphibia are frogs and toads. That, that's the order called the Anura, or an, Anura, I'm not sure how you say that, about 5,600 different types of species of frogs and toads. Uh, the only other types of amphibia that, that are, exist are salamanders and newts. They have their own order, uh, 500 species of those, and uh, something called the Sicilians, which you may not have heard of before. They, they basically look like snakes, but they're actually amphibia, not, not reptiles. Most snakes are reptiles. So in, in terms of amphibians, most of them are frogs and toads. So there, there actually isn't that much diversity left of amphibians. There's really only what we would call frogs, toads, salamanders, newts, and a few uh, hundred and so species of, of Sicilians. In terms of reptiles, there's a bit more diversity, but not too much. Uh, most reptiles, about, in fact, almost all of the species, something like uh, 7,800 or so, uh, are squamata, basically lizards, snakes, and worm lizards. So quite a lot of species, so well over 7,000 species of lizards and snakes. Uh, that's more than all the species of mammals. Uh, they have their own order. Then there are about 300 different species of turtles and tortoises, which have their own order as well. There are about 23 species of crocodiles and alligators and a few other things which uh, have their own order as well. So a- again, you see one order which has 23 species, another one which has you know, over 7,000 species, a very big, big difference there, but both at the sort of same level. It goes further than that because there's one more order of, of reptiles, uh, which are the uh, Tuataras from New Zealand. There are only two different species of these. They they basically look like lizards, uh, but but they are actually distinct enough to have their own order. I'm not precisely sure why that is, why they're not classed with lizards, uh, but there's something different about them enough to have their own order. So, just g- going over uh, amphibia and reptiles again, because many people are a bit less familiar with those than they are with mammals. We had um, seven order in total: three in the three amphibia. One, uh, frogs and toads, that's most of the amphibians. Then there's salamanders and newts, and the Sicilians, which are kind of like snakes. Then in the reptiles, we had most of them being snakes, lizards. And then there's also a few uh, a few hundred tortoises and turtles, and then the crocodiles and the uh, tuataras. Now, before we move on to birds and mammals, uh, th- there's something I want to say here about the evolutionary relationship uh, between these, di- these four different types of tetrapods. Remember, tetrapods are reptiles, mammals, amphibians, and birds all have uh, four main limbs. You might not think of birds as having four limbs, by the way, but they do, the wings count. So if we look at the evolutionary history of tetrapods, uh, the amphibians were the first to branch off. Uh, they form their own clade. Remember, that's that they're all descended from a single common ancestor. And 
Then we had mammals branching off after that. Then next we had uh, turtles and tortoises branch off. Then after that came uh, snakes and lizards branched off. Then the crocodiles branched off. And then finally uh, the, the birds branched off, or, or actually crocodiles and birds branched, branched off from each other. That's evolutionarily the most recent to, to occur. Now the interesting thing is that three of those groups that I mentioned, that is the, the, the tortoises, the snakes and lizards, and the crocodiles, those three we call reptiles, but the other two, the mammals that branched off first and then the birds which branched off last, we, we, we call those, well, mammals and birds. In other words, they have their own class. But reptiles, we group together three uh, different clades into one class called reptiles. So the point I'm making here is that reptiles is actually, as I mentioned, uh, as uh, the word I mentioned earlier, uh, a polyphylic classification category or taxa, it includes multiple different clades, or it doesn't include all of the uh, descendants of of one uh, common ancestor. One way of fixing this would be just to split off uh, snakes and lizards, tortoises and turtles, and crocodiles, and give them all their own class. But that's kind of an unpopular idea, because there aren't actually that many of each of those. I guess you could kind of do it with snakes and lizards, but crocodiles would be a pretty small class. Um, Same with tortoises and turtles. Another possibility would just be to include birds in with reptiles. That's probably the easiest way of doing it, because if you throw birds in with reptiles, then it becomes uh, it becomes a clade. The, the trouble is in, in having them separated out there. It's sort of mammals and birds works, but reptiles doesn't, because it's just sort of a leftover category, one of those waste bis- wastebasket taxons that I mentioned earlier. So there's a lot of controversy about what we're going to do with reptiles exactly, because they're, they're sort of not like mammals and birds. They don't, they don't fit very well evolutionarily. So basically, you know, birds are reptiles, evolutionarily speaking, deal with it. But according to our classification, they are not. They are their own class, the birds. So it's time to talk about those now, or aves. Aves, it's also uh, is the proper term. There's about 10,000 different species of birds, so quite a lot. Much, much more diversity than in the amphibians or the reptiles. You remember there are only three or four different orders, but there are, I'm not sure how many I've got here, 20 or 30 different orders of birds. There's an interesting uh, sub subclass distinction. So there's one uh, subclass which has almost all the species of birds, like 990,000. Uh, excuse me, 9,900 uh, different species of birds. So most modern flying birds fit into this subclass, called, which is called um, Neognathia or something. And then there's the other subclass, which is Paleognathia, so it's sort of an older species, uh, an older grouping, which is the, the flightless birds. And also a, a small bird from uh, South America, which is called the, the Tinamou or the Tinamou or something. Uh, the other order which I won't try and pronounce, uh, are the flightless birds, so ostriches, emus, rays, and the and the, the, the kiwi. So they all sort of fit into their own subclass. But then in the other one, the, the neognathia, is most modern flying birds. And again, I'm not going to go through all of these individually, because there are too many of them, and many of them I don't even know what they are. You may have recalled before that about 40% of the bony fish just fit into one order. Even though there were like 30 different orders, 40% of the species fit into one of them. It's, and, I, and I mentioned it was the same thing with, with birds. So there's one order of birds called um, Passeriformes, which has about 5,000 different species, which is about half of all of the, the bird species. And these are pretty much all of the songbirds. Um, so things like crows, ravens, wrens, warblers, sparrows, finches, robins, all of the sort of canonical, most, most bird-like birds in some sense um, are actually uh, Passeriformes. But, uh, as I mentioned, there are many, many other different orders of uh, birds as well, something like about 20. So, again, I'll just go through uh, some of the ones you, you may have heard of. So, waterfowls, about 150 species of those. Uh, the turkey, chicken, pheasants, and grouse, about 300 species. They, they all fit in their own order. Penguins, there's about 20 different species of penguins. They're their own order. 
albatrosses, over a hundred different species of those, well, albatrosses and sort of similar birds, their own order, pelicans and other similar birds, 60 species, storks and similar, 20 species, flamingos, six species of flamingos, and again, their own order, eagles, hawks, vultures, so these are all the birds of prey, there's over 200 species of those, falcons, nearly 300 species, also uh, birds of prey, cranes, sand grouse, doves and pigeons, they have their own order, uh, parrots, something like 370 species of those. Oh, and cockatoos also fit in there. There's also owls, so the true owls and barn owls, about 200 different species of those. Kingfishers and bee eaters, about 90 species of those. Woodpeckers, toucans, barbets, and puffbirds, so uh, some of those with really big beaks, about 400 different species. So just amazing diversity there. So, that's all we have for today's show. Hopefully you found that interesting. In the next episode, I will move on to discuss the diversity within the class of mammals, and we'll look at the different orders and families within that. If you'd like to support the show, please jump onto iTunes and give the podcast a favourable review. Uh, I always appreciate that, as it helps to raise the visibility of the show. You can also send me an email. My address is fods12 at gmail.com. That's F-O-D-S-1-2 at gmail.com. Thank you for listening, and I'll talk to you next time. <laughs>